how many of you have ever heard the phrase, and maybe you've even said it, talk is cheap? Have you ever heard that before? Talk is cheap. Or maybe you've heard uh, you've heard something similar or used something similar. How about this one? He talks a good game. Have you ever said that? That guy talks a good game. And I've always gotten a kick out of that guy who, one of my favorites, is he tells you what he would have done. You know who I'm talking about? Have you ever talked to that guy? I love that guy. He's, you know, Big Talker. That's his name, Mr. Big Talker. Well, if I had been there, I would have done this, right? If I had been there, I would have done, if that guy had said that to me, I'll tell you what I would have said to him, right? Big Talker. He's the guy. He can tell you exactly what he would have done if he had been there. I would have said this to him. I would, if I had been there, I would have told him this and I would have shown him that. Then when he has the opportunity, just like everybody else, he wimps out and he does the same thing everybody else does, right? That's Mr. Big Talker. That's what he does. He talks a good game, but he really kind of lacks the courage of his conviction, doesn't he? When it comes right down to it, there's not enough courage to act on his conviction. There's not enough courage to act on his belief. Well, I can tell you right now, if I were in that guy's position... I totally would have done this. If I had seen that, if I had been there, I totally would have done that. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, he's just not really strong enough to take the action that his convictions seem to demand. But I want you to know, for everybody who has ever claimed to believe anything, anyone who has ever claimed to believe anything at all will face a moment of truth where you have the opportunity to take action on what you really say you believe. I'd like to share an example with you if I could this morning. And to do that, I'd like to take you to the Old Testament book of Joshua. Yes, for those of you who have been here for some time, I do realize there is an Old Testament in the Bible. And I'm going to take you there this morning. We're going to go to the book of Joshua. And if you'll remember what's happening here in the book of Joshua, is just a few chapters earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses, the great leader, has died. And now it's time for someone to be appointed as his successor. And that person is Joshua. So by the time we get to Joshua chapter 1, God has decided that Joshua is the guy. And God told Joshua, you are going to lead these people to inherit the land that I promised to them. You're going to take these people into the promised land that I swore to their forefathers to give to them. And then when we get to chapter 3, this is what God says in verse 7 to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so also will I be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And I'm going to just stop right there. Because this is really Joshua's moment of truth. Here he is, about ready to take over this huge nation. He's going to lead them. He's following in the steps of the man that they considered the greatest prophet, the greatest leader of the nation's history. That man is now dead, and now it's time for Joshua, the one who claims that he believed that God had told him that it was time for them to cross over the river, and now it's the moment of truth. Now it's time to take some action. God says, you have to cross the Jordan. If you want to get to the promised land, you have to get across this river. 
You have to take the Ark of the Covenant. You have to carry that with you. You have to get into the water and you have to start crossing. Think about that. You have to get into the water and you have to start crossing. Man, I'll tell you what. If I was there, I would have grabbed that ark up and I would have walked right into that water. I wouldn't have given it a second thought, man. I'll tell you, I would have just jumped right in. I wouldn't have even bothered rolling up my pant legs. I would have just marched right in. I'm not afraid. I would have done it. So says Mr. Big Talker. But let me just share a little more information with you. Because once you hear this, maybe the conversation with Big Talker would change a little bit. Because what it is that he doesn't understand is that if you go to verse 15, there's a parenthetical statement there that, that maybe makes it a little bit more difficult for him to take that action. This is what it says in verse 15. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of the harvest. See what's going on here? What time of year do you suppose it is? It's the time of the harvest. And if you read the NIV, the NIV says this, now the Jordan is at flood stage during harvest. So here we are at the time of harvest being commanded to get into the water and start crossing the water. The Jordan River is literally overflowing its banks right now. There is huge current. There's water absolutely everywhere. It's at flood stage. Have you ever seen a river at flood stage? How many of you want to wade out into that during flood stage carrying a big ark? How many of you would really want to do that? But now, if you think about it, here we are, the river at flood stage, and now as Joshua approaches the water with the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, I suspect he had some things running through his mind. Can you imagine what that might have sounded like if he were to talk to himself? What kinds of things would he have been saying to himself? Can you imagine that? Did I really hear from God? <laughs> Is this really a good idea? I mean, look at that water. It's, it's moving pretty fast. Is it possible that I was just imagining that God told us to cross the Jordan? Have you ever had that conversation? I believe that God told me this, but then, you know, when it's time to take action, you think, is it? Was I really just imagining this? I mean, maybe this isn't really what God wants for me. Is it possible that that's what Joshua was thinking as he approached the Jordan River? I mean, did I really hear him tell me to get into the water? Why do I need to get into the water? So I want to just pause here for a moment, if we could, and I want us to just take a little time of reflection. Because at this point in the narrative, we need to decide something. Let me ask you. At this point in the narrative, do you believe that Joshua's faith is real? Do you believe that it's a real deal? I wonder. I mean, at this point, do we have any real reason to believe that Joshua has a real and active faith that God actually told him to cross the River Jordan? Do we really believe that he is convinced that he should cross the river? I'm not. Do you want to know why? Because at this point, there is nothing to back up Joshua's claim that he truly believes that God is going to intervene. At this point, there's nothing really to back that up. You see, he has said that he heard from God. He claims that he has heard from God. And he said that they're going to stand in the flooded river and that the entire nation is going to cross over the river into the promised land. They've talked about it, but that's it. At this point, all they've done is approached the river. They've talked about it. But talk is cheap, isn't it? Anyone could talk about it. Now let's take a look at the second part of verse 15. And some things that are following, we're still in the NIV here, and this is what it said. As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing, 
and it piled up in a heap a great distance away. And we'll just stop right there. Let me ask you, now do you believe that Joshua's faith is real? Why? Why is it that at this point it's easier for us to believe that his faith is real? It's interesting to me that in verse 8, that God required the priest to actually stand in the water. Did you notice that? Why in the world would God require that they stand in the water? I mean, why didn't He just require them to walk down to the river and stand on the bank until God stopped the water? God didn't have to have them get in the water in order for the water to stop flowing. God could have just said, part, and, and the water would have parted and they could have walked right across. But that's not what he did. He said, I want you to go down there and I want you to stand in the water. So why in the world did God require them to get into the water, which at the present time is at flood levels overflowing the banks? May I suggest to you that it's because talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Don't tell me you believe something and then not take action on what you claim to believe. You see, if the priests don't get into the water, there's no reason for God to intervene. If the priests don't get into the water, there's no reason for God to stop the flow, is there? Think about that. God says, if you really believe me, take action to do what I have said. I'm convinced that Joshua's faith is real. I'm convinced of it. Do you know why? Because when he came to the moment of truth, he took action that was consistent with what he claimed to believe. Are you still with me? Well, since the beginning of the year, if you've been with us, you'll know that we've been working our way through the book of James. And as we've been doing that, we found several tests that we're supposed to use to determine the genuineness of our faith. And so if James is trying to to force us to test the genuineness of our faith, and if Paul commands us, and he does, that we are to examine ourselves to see if we truly are in the faith, according to 2 Corinthians 13.5, listen, then I think that that in itself begs this question. Is all faith genuine faith? Is all faith genuine faith? Is all faith saving faith? And I think the answer to that very clearly is no, it is not. No, it is not. There are people who claim to have legitimate, genuine, saving faith in Jesus Christ, and the truth is that they do not. Why else would Jesus tell them in Matthew 7, 22, that many people at the time of judgment will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Those are some pretty spiritual things those people were doing. They were doing some pretty convincing works. They were preaching. They were teaching. They were doing some miraculous things. They were doing great things. Certainly, it's logical to believe that people who are doing such great things as that have genuine faith, isn't it? But they don't. Very clearly, they don't. They think that they are truly saved, but very clearly, they are not. Those are the ones of whom James spoke in chapter 1 and verse 26. You'll remember, they have deceived their own minds. Do you remember that? They have deceived themselves into believing something about themselves that is not true. And I want you to know that it happens all the time. It happens all the time. We've noted several times before that not everyone sitting in the seats of all of the churches across the country every Sunday are really going to make it. They're not. 
Not everyone who walks into a church door and sits in the pew week after week after week is actually going to make it. They're not all going to pass the test. And that's why James and Paul both tell us, test yourselves. Be sure that you're examining yourselves. Watch closely. Check yourselves out. Make sure that you are the real deal. And today, in the book of James, we're going to come to our fifth tests. And this test is a really, really good one. Do you know what it is? It's a test of action. It's the test of action. Do you know why? Because, say it with me, talk is talk is cheap, man. And that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7. Did you know that? I want to take you back to verse 21. I want you to see this. It's not what you say. It's what you do. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who what? Not everyone who says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? The one who does. The one who does the will of my Father is the one who will get into heaven. Look, it's not the one who says, it is the one who does. Do you know what Jesus is saying here to these people? He's saying, listen to me, talk is cheap. Look at those words again. It's not the one who says who goes to heaven. It's the one who does. Do you see? Talk is cheap, friends. Talk is cheap. It's not the claims that you make of yourself. It's not what you say about yourself that really defines your character. Do you know that? It's what you do. It's not what you say of yourself that defines you. It's the things that you do. Now I want to take you back to the book of James, and we're going to take a look at our passage for today. And I want you to know right up front, spoiler alert, that's the real message today. Talk is cheap. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. Take a look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? We're using the... ESV here, and I think that it really translates the question from James very, very well. Can that faith save him? What good is it? What good is it for you? What do you gain from it? What advantage do you find in saying that you have faith? What profit is there in you saying that you have faith? And what's the other side to the whole thing? If you do not have works. What profit do you get from saying that you have faith if you do not have works? Now, it's really important for us to pause here for a moment, if we could, because I want to make sure that you have a firm understanding of this concept of work. It's the Greek word ergon. This is a Greek word ergon, and it literally means work, it means labor, and it means effort. Now, I want you to hang on to this. It was thought of as a useful activity or a useful action. Do you see? Think about this. A useful activity or a useful action. In fact, when Socrates was put to death, the charge against him was he was peri-ergos. That means he was around ergon. He was around work. What that means is he was a busybody, and the things that he was doing were not productive. You see? That's what Aragon is. And he was peri-ergos. He was a busybody. He was doing things that were not ergos or productive. Now, some people are, will, will interpret this, this word to mean good deeds, and I want you to know that there definitely is room for that in the translation, but to say that is to leave it just a little bit incomplete. It's to, to miss the whole picture. Listen, it doesn't tell the complete story. Remember, James is setting up a 
contrast between what you say and what you actually do. So you would do well to think of this as a continuation of chapter 1, verse 22, in which he says this, be what? Doers of the word and not hearers only. This is a continuation of that. Listen, I want to illustrate that for you if I could. Have you ever had a time in your life where for some reason you just felt like you had this deeper connection with God than, than you normally do? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? I mean, maybe you've been in a time of journaling. Maybe you've been in a time of you know doing really well in your one-year Bible reading plan. Maybe that's what it is. Or whatever it is, you just feel like you had this great connection with God. And I can remember a time when, when my wife and I had participated in a silent prayer retreat. And at the end of that thing, I felt that same way. I thought, wow, they, what a neat connection. This is great. I just feel like so deep in my relationship with God right now. I mean, this is exactly what I needed. This is exactly what I wanted. I feel like this deep connection with God. I feel like this deeper sense of spirituality. Have you ever been there? If you're a believer, at some point you probably have. I needed this deeper sense of spirituality. And I want you to know that I think most people are actually hungry for that. I think there are a lot of people that really are hungry for that. And I think that's okay. But they'll get up and they'll go to seminars and they'll go to retreats looking for those kinds of things. They look for that opportunity. And I want you to know that that's exactly how I felt after that silent prayer retreat. It was fantastic. I felt great. But when the retreat was over, none of my problems had changed. In fact, as I was driving home from the silent prayer retreat, that same guy was still in the left lane driving way slower than everybody else. And you know what I did? I yelled at him. He had it coming, right? I mean, get out of the left lane for crying out loud. What are you doing? And so here's this guy. He's still just cruising along in the left lane just like he did when I was on my way to the prayer retreat. And so I gave him what he had coming. I shouted at him. I mean, he had that coming. And then when I got home, for some reason I was still impatient with my kids. I got home. I told my wife how much I loved her. But then I didn't do anything to sacrificially serve her. See, I still had all the same problems. Are you following me? I still had all the same problems. And so I thought to myself, what was the point of all that? What was the point of that? So I could walk out to my car feeling good until I yelled at the guy that was in the left lane? I mean, what really is the point of all of that? What is the point of feeling the great sense of closeness to God if it doesn't actually translate to anything real? I want you to hear that. What is the point of feeling a great closeness with God if it doesn't translate to anything that's real? What's the point of conceptualizing my spirituality? What's the point of making myself feel like I'm really doing something great if I'm unable to implement it practically? That's the point James is making. Do you see? That's the point that he's trying to make here. And what he's saying is, what good is it for you to say but not do? What good is it for you to say but not do? And I want you to keep in mind the desperate condition of the people of the fledgling church that James was writing to. You remember they were all in the dispersion everywhere. You remember they were persecuted. They were badly impoverished. And they were so badly impoverished, in fact, that other believers were selling whatever they had to help pay for maybe just one meal or some clothing for some of the other poor people in the church. And so James then uses that condition as an illustration. Now take a look at verse 15 and 16. This is what he says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and he's lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? So imagine now. Imagine in that desperate situation, in that desperate condition, someone just like me has spent an entire day at this great silent prayer retreat. I'm feeling really spiritual right now. Things are great. I've drawn close to God all day. I've used my very best pencil and I've used my very best handwriting to write my very deepest thoughts in that little hardback journal that they give you. You know the one with the nice ribbon bookmark? You know which one I'm talking about? And so I've written all of these deep thoughts into this journal and everything is great. I mean, I've read my Bible and I'm feeling really good about things. Spiritually, I'm in a really good place. And I get up and I walk out the door thinking about what I'm going to eat at Culver's when I go through the drive-thru because, man, I'm so spiritual. I've been fasting all day and I'm really hungry. So I make my way to the car and as I'm thinking, you know, as I'm getting ready to go to Southridge, I'm thinking to myself, man, what am I going to get when I get to the Culver's drive-thru? And as I'm making my way to the car, I see another believer who has absolutely nothing. He can't pay his bills. He doesn't have food on the table. He has absolutely nothing. And I want you to look at what the guy in verse 16 does to him. I want you to see what he says to him. This guy in verse 16, who's doing so well spiritually, he looks at him, and I love this, he says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Can I put that in today's vernacular for you? This is what it sounds like. Hey man, I'm totally going to be praying for you, right? I'm totally going to be praying for you, man. I just want you to know that I'm going to be lifting you up, that God will show himself to be your provider. I mean, Jehovah Jireh, right? All that good stuff. God will provide for you. And so I'm praying for that for you. I'm going to ask God to give you a nice hot meal. I'm going to ask God to give you a nice warm jacket, you know, like the Milwaukee one that has the battery in there so that it's heated and you're super warm. And then I walk off. I get in my car, go grab my double butter burger, maybe a milkshake, make my way to... Southridge, where I buy a nice you know, pair of shoes for myself. If I do that, what was the point of my time of closeness with God? What was it all for? What did I gain so that I could look spiritual when I walked past the guy and said, Peace, my brother, be thou warmed and filled. What was the point? That's what James is saying. And do you know what the answer is that James implies here? What did I gain from that? James says, you gain nothing. You've gained nothing from your private time with God. You've gained absolutely nothing from that prayer retreat. You've gained absolutely nothing from your Bible study. If you just walk right past the guy having resources and not making the sacrifice to serve him and to feed him and to provide clothing for him, there was absolutely nothing of any eternal benefit at all from your prayer meeting. In the same way, if you come here every Sunday, and I hope that you do come here every Sunday, and you enjoy great worship, You enjoy a message from the Word of God. You enjoy a great time of being built up by the community of brothers and sisters right here at Root River Church. And then you walk out the door to ignore your obligation to sacrificially serve your wife and to serve your kids. What was it for? Why did you even bother going? Do you see? You're fooling yourself. You're hearing the Word, but you're not doing it. Do you see? You're hearing it, but you're not taking action. And James says, you profit zero. You gain absolutely nothing. What difference does it make if you come to church on Sunday and you feel this special presence of the Holy Spirit and things were just absolutely wonderful and you feel some special and emotional thing if you go home and you treat your husband with the exact same level of disrespect that you showed him yesterday? What is the point of that? Why did you even bother? Talk is cheap. 
That's what James is saying. Don't tell the impoverished man, hey man, I'm praying for you. You know, Jehovah Jireh, it's all good. Sell something. Take some money out of your pocket. Sell something that you own. Make a sacrifice and go buy that guy some food. Sacrifice something that you want so that you can be a help to him. Listen, don't say, don't say to your husband, don't say to your wife, don't just say to your children that you love them. It's not good enough. It's not good enough to just say it. Take the action and make the sacrifice that costs you something. Make the sacrifice that actually hurts a little bit. That's the point. Don't say that you love them. Love them. Don't say that you love them. Take the action. Make the sacrifice for them. Talk is cheap. James is saying don't sit around contemplating. Don't sit around talking about your spirituality. Do it. Listen, friends. Don't gather together here at Root River Church to just talk about spirituality. Don't come here to just sit around and contemplate your belly button. Do it. Take some action. Make a move on the things that you are learning. Put them into work. It's crazy to me how much effort people will go through looking for experience. It's crazy to me how much effort people go through to find like this sensation and how little work that we put into actually serving and giving. And you can apply this to every part of your life. I mean, oh man, I just love my church. I have the greatest church ever. The worship is fantastic. They got all those lights, you know, people are raising their hand and you know, they're crying and they're shouting. And you know, then the preacher gets up and he's really good. I just, I love my church, man. It's absolutely wonderful. It's the greatest thing ever. Everybody makes you feel so welcome. I just, I really love it. I just don't love it to the extent that I will actually take action on it. I don't love it to the extent that I'll plug in and serve. I don't love it to the extent that I will actually make an investment and that I will sacrificially give. I just like to talk about how great it is. makes me feel good. I tell everybody how much I love it. That's good enough. I just don't take any action. Friends, we like to sit around in rooms together talking about our faith. We like to sit around in rooms together talking about how much we love God. But I want you to know the message this morning is talk is cheap means absolutely nothing if it does not affect change in your life. It doesn't matter how well you know the passage that says you shall not commit adultery if you walk out the door and sleep with your neighbor's wife. It doesn't matter how many verses of Scripture you can quote if you can't put them to work. You can know the instructions, but if you can't follow them, what's the point? It means absolutely nothing. The faith that you say that you have is not at all, listen to this, it is not at all beneficial to you on an eternal level if it is not actionable. You see? No matter what you say, on an eternal level, your faith means absolutely nothing if it is not actionable. You get absolutely no profit from it at all if it does not produce sacrificial action in your life. James puts it this way in verse 17, so also faith by itself... Talk by itself is what? If it does not have works, it's, it's dead. If you've ever been to a funeral, I know that you've noticed this. And every time that I've ever attended a funeral and I've looked at the deceased, I've thought to myself, that is not him. Have you ever thought that? That is not my friend. That is not my whatever. It's just a shell. 
I can tell they're not in there anymore, right? I can tell they're not there anymore. That's not Him. He's not there anymore. It's just a shell. And I want you to know that I've never really gotten over that. I look and I just know that's not my friend. He's not there anymore. Why? Because that thing that gave Him life, the thing that made Him vibrant, the thing that made Him active is not in the shell anymore. Do you see? It's gone. Do you know what that thing is? It's His Spirit, isn't it? That thing is His Spirit. And when it's gone, when the Spirit is gone, all that remains is an empty shell. And out of respect for families, for survivors, we do our very best to make the shell look like the, the loved one who was alive. But it's just not the same. It's just a shell. And that's an absolutely wonderful analogy of what is happening here. In fact, did you know that James uses that analogy himself? You're going to see that in a few verses from now, down in verse 25. This is what he says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Friends, it is the action of your faith. It is the action that is manifest by your faith that really gives it life. You see? It is the action, it is the movement that makes your faith real. That's the breath that makes it alive and makes it vibrant. You take away that action, you take away the activity, you take away the air gone, and your faith is nothing more than a lifeless shell. It's necros. It's a corpse. It's inanimate. It's dead. Now listen, you can dress it up all you want. You can do its hair. You can make it look as nice as you possibly can. You can take it to prayer meetings. You can take it to Bible studies. You can take it to church every single week. You can baptize it. You can do whatever you want to it. But you need to understand that if the air gone is gone, it's gone. And it's just a shell. If all of those things that you do do not translate to action if they don't manifest themselves in movement. If that's all it is, there is no ergon. It's just a corpse. And it's bringing you absolutely zero eternal value. That's the test for today. That's the challenge for today. I want to ask you to just pause for a moment to examine yourselves. Is your faith real? Is your faith living? Is your faith active? Or is it just talk? Because if it's just talk, it will produce nothing of eternal value for you. Father, I thank You for Your mercy. I thank You that there's reconciliation. I thank You that we can come to You and that we can lean on You and we can turn to You and that You will make our faith alive and real and that You will speak life to us. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room right now that You would take that action, that You would make their lives, their faith alive and real. Lord, that they would take action on the things that they say they believe, that this would be a day of change for them, that it would no longer be enough for them to do the spiritual-looking things. It would not be enough for them anymore to just do prayer meetings and church and this and that thing, but God, that they would take action that is measurable. They would take living action that proves that 
that their faith is genuine and authentic. I pray, God, that they would not just hear the word, that they would walk out the door and that you would empower them through your indwelling Holy Spirit to actually do the word that they've heard. That's my prayer for Root River Church. I pray, God, that you would give us a passion to be people who live to do your will and to accomplish your purpose. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.